Maybe you find, like me, that, uh, that mindfulness of breathing teaches us a lot about efforting, which is so easy to, over and over again, create problems for ourselves or discover that our effort isn't so wise or isn't so good in this practice of mindfulness of breathing. So we're, I guess, fully now into the middle part of the five faculties, remembering this image of an engine, the engine of awakening, requiring some inspiration. You know, it's like we pull the, whatever you call that, on the lawnmower or the snowblower, and there's that, uh, basically it's that movement that's different than being, being swept along by life. Otherwise, we're just being swept along by everything that's happening. And then, somehow we get inspired to do something different. Faith inspires us to do something different. So maybe instead of, you don't like that more aggressive movement, then you can think of faith inspires us to let go. But actually, we need to be open to both the assertive and the receptive, because people whose mode of being in the world is to be receptive, then when you're inspired by faith, you're going to have the more assertive movement. And those of us who are being swept along and being very assertive and reactive, then faith is going to inspire us to do something different, right? to let go or to be receptive. There's this art some of you remember I read a little from Sarah Dowring's article right at the end, I think last week. This is one of the articles that I sent you the link for. And she has uh, a talk that was transcribed on the five faculties. And this is just a sentence or two what she wrote about effort. When effort is balanced without any strain, there is no sense of I should do this. Rather, Rather, there is just a willingness to do this. Out of that willingness, there comes a more and more constant flow of energy. I like that idea of effort, and I use it sometimes in my practice or just in my life um, when there seems something insurmountable. Like, for example, when we notice how much restlessness or aversion or how much we actually have to do a big long to-do list is to see the effort more as a releasing into the flow of our life you know inhabiting our life and basically depending on the nature of our life and the nature of all of the causes and conditions of our life, all the supporting causes and conditions, all of that together is going to do whatever needs to be done next, take the next step, whatever that is. So it's just a a particular skillful means to tease the sense of a self who's got the world on his or her shoulders. I have to do this. I have to do this to-do list. I have to work with this mind. I have to come back to the breath. 
I should that Sarah's pointing to. So we have that inspiration and as we engage effort in mindfulness and concentration, this is the real engine of awakening. It's, it's, we're setting in motion something that has its own integrity, but it, you know, something that hasn't moved before, it might be rusty, might take some time to heat up. And the Buddha uses this sometimes, this image of heating up. You know, when something gets warmed up, it, it, all the oil starts to get loose and flows and you can kind of get in a groove, I think we say sometimes. In um, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom, uh, one of the things that somebody scanned for us and was sent out, this is a chapter in that book, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom, the chapter on the five faculties and the section on effort. I mentioned this last week, but I didn't read from it. I just want to share a little bit. And I think Joseph Goldstein wrote this chapter. The qualities of heroic effort is the second of the five spiritual faculties. It is the root of our practice and the source of all accomplishment in our lives. But if this quality of effort is not correctly understood, it can also lead to ambition, tension, and the creation of more goals and models at which to grasp. We need to understand effort and energy in a way that generates them from within us rather than imposing them from the outside by some ideal that demands that we be a certain way. I thought it would be useful just to reflect how many times we've created suffering for ourselves around effort. like avoiding doing what we're drawn to do or what we feel needs doing. I mean, think about how much suffering there's been in our life in avoiding this application of our mind to what needs to be done. Avoiding it, denying it, deadening the mind in the different ways, blaming. And all the suffering we've set in motion by, in a sense, getting on our high horse and riding into the battle and exerting our will, but from an ego or from a fear base or a greed base place. I remember one talk Jack Cornfield gave about, he said something simple like, who among us hasn't made fools out of ourselves in the world of sex? And we could say the same thing about effort. You know, who here hasn't made a fool of themselves in the area of efforting? You know, being overzealous, caught in our effort, and and people, they're just in the way. I see this a lot, where wind's in the way of my efforting, you know. I'm just sort of running around a bit mad. lost in the sense of getting something done, the importance of getting something done. And in a way, I notice in my mind sometimes that I'm almost looking for obstacles because it isn't even so much about getting something done, it's about pushing away obstacles. You know, it's like a, a kind of tripping on power. 
And I think this is, you know, this is one of the things that happens around effort is the mind gets attached to the doing. It isn't about the wholesomeness of the doing or what it's leading to that's wholesome or good. It's about being attached to power. Somewhere, maybe it was in one of the articles, there, I, someone was interviewing Carnegie, one of those old wealthy industrialists back in the turn of the century, 110 years ago, whenever he lived, and, um, and about this accumulation of money. And I, I forget where the quote was, but some journalist asked him, well, you know, and then you had so much money, why did you keep doing this? And he said something like, well, I didn't know how to stop. You know, this just being so into the struggle and the work and the agitation, you know, of the next project and solving it only to pick up the next project and solve it and the next project and solve it. So I notice a lot in... um, Western Buddhist circles that because, you know, the maybe because the Buddha came from the warrior caste or maybe, you know, in a general way the Asian personality is different than in a general way the Western personality is. But I notice that there's a lot of reaction to some of the heavy-handed talk around effort that you find in traditional Buddhist circles um, texts and especially with Asian teachers and I, I, I think it's because we have seen um, around us and in us we've seen effort gone bad many many times but that doesn't mean we can dispense with it you know no effort read a little bit more from this article. If we try to fit ourselves into a model of how we should be, our practice will be one of constant struggle and resistance. Yet it is possible and indeed necessary to nurture a sense of urgency and commitment within ourselves, which then generates a tremendous effort and energy for discovery. One way, we, uh, one way that we impose limits on our energy is by settling into comfortable patterns, patterns of eating, of sleeping, of relationships, of work. We assume certain boundaries and limits for ourselves and find comfort staying within their familiar confines. But when we are willing to extend beyond these limits, we find great reservoirs of energy available in our lives a wonderful rediscovery of something that we all know but often forget is that effort creates energy. And this is, this is even today, looking through this, um, inspiring, maybe a little shocking. And just to see how, as we get older, as I've gotten older, there is this strong tendency to settle into patterns. And the thing about energy, effort and energy, Making the effort to get out of the routines is very energizing. 
you know, I think one of the reasons people like to travel or go on vacation is because they get energized by by breaking free of their routines. You know, they don't have breakfast at the same time, or they, you know, things are different. This is, I think, important in terms of our practice too, which is such a creative endeavor. But the conditioned mind, the the mind, the ego-based mind, which really is coming out of this animal nature of wanting security and safety, it wants things settled, predictable. To be learning, it's interesting when we're in that place of learning, like it's discovery, we're enlivened by that, but we're also exposed by that. And so we have to really watch the mind because it's going to want, because of the conditioning, to gravitate towards what's comfortable, what's known, what's easy, and and sort of settle in. So the question is like, what can we do skillfully to uh, stir things up, to access that, the energy of learning, of moving into new territory? Later in this section, um, Joseph Goldstein, and I think I might have mentioned this briefly last week, talks about three aspects. There's launching energy, you know, which is the energy we need to, to go from being stuck to being unstuck. It's a particular kind of energy when we're settled, when we're certain, when we're, we have doubt about doing anything, to get up and do it anyway, just to do it, just to see what happens, just to see if there's anything there to learn, or that there would be any, just to see if there would be a positive result. It's like, maybe some of you, because you know, a number of you have been practicing for well over 10 years, and maybe you've given up on mindfulness of breathing and now you just do open attention or you just do this or you just do that because you found mindfulness of breathing frustrating or whatever. It doesn't, I'm not promoting mindfulness of breathing, breathing as the ultimate meditation technique. But the idea, like when someone gives you instructions, it's like that inertia, that conclusion in our mind that, oh, this isn't for me. This is a silly practice or I'm different. I've got a different kind of mind. Or whatever it is, you know. Oh, I don't need to do retreats anymore. I just rely on my steady daily practice. Or, you know, my life really isn't set up for daily practice. I just do my, I really get serious on retreats. So there's so many places in our, our practice personality where we've settled into some things safe. And the question is, how can we be inspired to move beyond it. What can we do? That puts us in unfamiliar ground, allows the mind to enter new territory, which is so enlivening, wakes us up. You know, the classic example is somebody, you know, maybe who's been single for a long time, now in their 40s or 50s or whatever, and falls in love, you know, like new territory. And they just come alive. Or someone's been stuck in a particular job for a long time and through a set of circumstances ends up in another job. Or somebody's been cruising through life 
thinking they have forever, and then they get a serious illness. And it shocks them, you know, and all of a sudden they realize they can't take things for granted. And things become very new and alive. So there's the launching energy. And then the liberating energy is the energy that, so we've launched, we're working, and then we bump up against something that feels overwhelming. So it's that fearlessness, that sense there's no going back now. (laughs) You know, we've all had experiences. What comes to my mind is, um, I, in my early 20s, I spent some time with a couple people, good friends, that were rock climbers. I wasn't really a rock climber, but they were good at it. And I sort of, you can do a lot when you're with people who really know what they're doing, even though you don't know what you're doing. But the thing about doing things with people like that is you can't really go back. I mean, you're all in it together. And it isn't, even if I, I mean, you literally can't go back alone because you need to work together with the ropes. It isn't something like, and it would be, it would be certain death. So there's only going forward. And this is that kind of energy where you realize it's, it's not even like we're fearless. It's more wisdom that understands there's, there really is no going back. Going back doesn't make sense. Somebody once made it funny and said, you know, like a porcupine going down a drain pipe, realizing it can't back up because of the quills. You just got to go forward. And it's the same thing with mindfulness and just this path generally of awakening. It's not like you can put it back in the box. Once the mind has a sense of being open and awake, you can't convince the mind not to be open and awake or that it doesn't make sense to be open and awake because it it does make sense. Regardless of what we see, it makes sense. So we can avoid seeing things we don't really feel comfortable seeing yet, but we understand it's just temporarily putting it aside. But it's going to keep arising and someday we'll have to take a look. We'll have to open up and feel what it is. Joseph ends this article by mentioning how often the Buddha used death, opening to death, as an inspiration for energy because it's the ultimate learning for us. It really brings us to that place of humility when we remember our death because we don't know what it is. We don't, from a um, conventional mind point of view, we don't really understand death. So it it throws us into that uh, new place, that place of, well, you know, of being open. There's a particular sutta, maybe some of you read it, in uh, the link to Ajantana Saro's uh, Wings to Awakening. And one of the Wings to Awakening is the set of five faculties. So that book is just divided into the different lists. And... Uh, Sutta number 82, I believe. Yes, Sutta number 82. The Buddha is talking about mindfulness of death. When developed and pursued, is of great fruit, great benefit 
It gains a footing in the deathless, has deathless as its final end. Therefore, you should develop mindfulness of death. When this was said, a certain monk addressed the Blessed One. I've already developed mindfulness of death. And how do you develop mindfulness of death? The Buddha asked this person. I think, oh, that I might live for a day and night, that I might attend to the Blessed One's instructions. I would have accomplished a great deal. This is how I develop mindfulness of death. So, in other words, he's saying, as if I just have this one day and night to live and practice. That's how I practice. And then another monk says, oh, I've also developed mindfulness of death. And he says, as if I were only to live for a day, not day and night, just day. And then another one says, oh, how about me? <laughs> I too develop mindfulness of death. I think, oh, that I might live for the interval, interval that it takes to eat a meal. Right? And the other one says, the next one says, for the interval that it takes to swallow having chewed up four morsels of food. And then the last, the, the next to last is one morsel of food. And then the, the final one says, oh, that I might live for the interval that it takes to breathe out or breathe in. So to, to live as if that's all the time we have. And then the Buddha at the end says, um, for those who say, Um, yes, yeah, so everybody who said everything from day and night to four morsels, they're not being heedful. <laughs> Only the one who said, for the length of time it takes to chew one morsel of food or breathe in or breathe out, only those people are appropriately heedful or vigilant. And you know, this word, apamata, you might have heard me talk about or read about, but it's a word that's used quite a bit in the Buddhist teachings. In fact, it was that last instruction he gave. Uh, I exhort you practitioners, everything comes and goes, attain liberation through vigilance. Right? Apamata, like wake up. Don't delay your practice. So, think about this as a skillful means. What can we reflect on that makes us respectful of the moment that we have now to do what we can do now? See, what we tend to do, if you're like me, is we tend to neglect what we can do now and then we feel guilty for having neglected what we can do now. And then we rush. Like Then we want to do more than we can do now. But we can only do what we can do now. You know, in a balanced way, in a mindful way, in a composed way, we can do what needs to be done now. We can't do more than that without being counterproductive. And to do less than that is counterproductive. It doesn't help. So there's, you know, there's two ways to, to uh, that faith act, uh, acts in our mind. One is um, basically convincing us that we know that we don't know, right? That inspires us. Knowing that we don't know, knowing that things are uncertain. Another 
I guess it was I was reading through a chant book today that I wanted to pass on to you, George. Uh, see me afterward. And uh, it had one of my favorite um, passages where the Buddha is talking to, I think it's King uh, Pasandeya uh, Pasadi. I forget how he pronounces his name. One of the, the good friends and supporters of the Buddha. And he was the same age of the Buddha and they're both old men probably in their early 80s or something. And uh, the king is just lamenting how difficult it is being a king. Anyway, just to make this short, uh, the king uh, talks about death in terms of four mountains marching towards you from the four directions. And, and he suggests to the Buddha, he's asking the Buddha, you know, I should practice as if there are these four mountains. And the Buddha agrees, yeah, that's how it is, especially at our age. Those four mountains is this great mystery of death. And we should practice knowing that there are these four mountains marching crushing everything, you know, in that or in the way. If you want, you can go back through the suttas, the different discourses that Ajahn Tanasaro puts in the Wings to Awakening. So in that book, Wings to Awakening, he talks about each of these lists, five faculties, eightfold path, five hindrances, seven factors of awakening. So he'll say a little bit and then he'll line up all the suttas that relate to it. So you can read all the suttas that relate to the five faculties in that section. And several of them he has are on heedfulness. And the Buddha spoke quite highly, as I mentioned, including, you know, he talks about of all the footprints, the elephant is supreme, you know, and of all the wholesome qualities the heedfulness is supreme. And you probably heard this passage from the Dhammapada. Heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The heedful do not die. The heedless are as if already dead. So on the one hand, we need to be inspired to make that launching energy, to be fearless when that's the appropriate response. And then the last kind of energy that's mentioned, um, I think this actually probably comes from later tradition, like from the Vasudhimaga, the path of purification that was written hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha. But liberating, uh, so I'm sorry, launching, liberating energy, which is when we're facing something difficult. And then the last, Joseph Goldstein calls, developed or progressive effort. And this is more when we've launched and we're not currently facing a big demon. And it's uh, an energy that's steady. And it's where we're, it's the learning itself. It's the steady movement into the unknown that's inspiring the mind, that's energizing the mind. And so there's a feedback mechanism. The work itself is providing the energy for the work. And so it's the work there is to keep the balance because it's the balance, the balance application of the mind to the moment and the learning that happens in that moment, the awakening that happens in that moment is energizing, enlivening the mind. 
So all we have to do is keep this process balanced and the effort keeps going. It's much more subtle than the effort needed. And bringing up any more dense effort would be counterproductive at this point. So there's just like an overview awareness, right? And that overview awareness understands that wisdom is doing the work. And when wisdom flags, then, you know, just seeing that, just being aware of that may be the cause for wisdom to come back. Oh, it's like this now. This is being known. You can feel that some way. Maybe even you got some of that in the uh, mindfulness of breathing instructions. But as the concentration develops, you'll see that it's not just tranquility. It's the combination of stillness and peace, but a powerful, powerful energy in the mind, a real brightness. It's like the mind is on fire. It's not missing anything as it develops. So on the one hand, there's more stability in the mind, that stillness. And the other hand, everything that's coming and going is effortlessly seen. It's just, and the mind just immediately knows it and lets go, knows it and lets go, knows it and lets go. I wanted to share before opening it up for discussion um, another one of those lists. This is also in Wings to Awakening, but uh, I'm basing some of this on a talk that Ajahn Pasano gave. He's one of the senior Western monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition, and currently he's abbot of Abayagiri, um, north of San Francisco, the wonderful monastery. And he talks about these four bases of success or bases for accomplishment. So there's chanda, which is desire, not unwholesome desire, but just that basic desire, life energy. So nothing happens without being motivated to do something. And this is what we find coming out of faith, confidence, is this basic movement of life energy. Well, heck, let's do something about this. This is cool. This makes sense. This is interesting. I want to be like her. Right? And we're inspired. And then motivation flows out of that. That's chanda. And we trust that motivation. Oh. I mean, even when we read a passage or hear a talk, we can feel that motivation like we want to sit down and do the practice or sign up for the next retreat or you know do whatever would be useful so we don't want to be afraid you know uh, we don't want to be afraid of motivation this this uh, forward movement you know there is a place in life for forward motion just like there's a place in life for receptive you know, letting go. We want to be, you know, a, a healthy human being is somebody who in a moment, depending on the particular moment, 
is ready to move forward and is ready to be completely receptive. And it's only the nature of the moment that's arising that will tell us whether this moment requires some assertive forward movement or whether this moment, what's appropriate, is a letting go or being receptive. And ideally, we wouldn't have a preference. I mean, we all do. Our personality is conditioned in different ways. And some of us are always trying to move forward. And some of us are always trying to let things be or retreat or be receptive. But we really want that the response to come out of the moment, not from our conditioned habits, but what what's useful in this moment. And the interesting thing about this motivation, in fact, all four of these bases of success is to notice the quality of joy. And that, that could be one of the themes people talk about next week in the small groups is how, like, instead of thinking of effort in terms of hard work, why not for this week and forever see effort as a kind of joy? I mean, you know how it is. It feels good to do things unless we think we have to do it. <laughs> and then it doesn't feel good. It's like, you know, for a long time, people had to chop wood, you know, to stay warm. It was probably a pain in the butt. But now, you know, some of us, we want to chop wood because we never get to. You know, we look forward to those few times we get to swing an axe and just feel what that feels like. Or take a hike. Or carry a backpack. Or paddle a boat. So, this more, this first step, you know, chanda, the motivation to do, the willingness to do, like, see that as a kind of joy. Life, I, I like this translation. I haven't seen other people use it, but, you know, I like the translation of joy as life energy moving, right? So when we let, that's what life energy does. It just moves. And when we let, when the mind allows life energy to move, however dense that is, it feels good. Just like it feels good to move our bodies when we don't, lay down a trip like, oh, I have to move my body. I'd rather be still. And then it's a pain to move our body. But otherwise, it actually feels good to move our bodies. The next one is virya, which we talked about last week. And I mentioned that it's related to the word virile, manly. Uh, George was telling me in, is in Greek, what's the word? Man. Vir? Yeah. Hmm. In Latin, you said? Oh, Latin, okay. And here it's, uh, you know, more direct application of the mind, application of the will. So there's the motivation, and then it's like, then we put the shoulder, you know, against what we're pushing, or we pick up, or we do. And it's a steadfastness, um, like uh, we're going to get the job done. So the motivation is the initial. And then there's a sense like a stick to I'm not going to put this down until it's done. And then chitta is the next one. And it has to do with focus or concentration or uh, there's a strength of mind. Like uh, 
the mind is dedicated or it's committed. You could even say, I think we could even say to some degree, there's an identification or a commitment like, this is what my life is about. It's about accomplishing this. I've set myself this task. It's going to be done. And this isn't how we normally talk about it because that sounds really ego-based. But the fact is, you know, if we're here, we have to some degree, it's just a question how conscious we are of it, we've set ourselves to this task of awakening. Whatever there is to know, I set myself to the task to know it, to wake up. I feel in my bones that being ignorant to this mind or to what's going on isn't helpful. I know that in my bones. So I set myself to this task of awakening. It's like it's the story that I've taken up. Like the Buddha, you know, he talks about the Dhamma, that these teachings as a raft. We, we're in trouble, there's a flood, and we need to get across, so we build a raft. And that's the story we tell ourselves about needing to awaken. I mean, in the absolute sense, there isn't anybody here that needs to awaken. But in a relative sense, we need a story. Most of the stories don't help. The one story that does help we call Dhamma. <laughs> you know, it's, the, it's the story of build a raft to get yourself free from dependencies and then let go of the raft. And so this is this path of awakening. It's a story we tell ourselves. There's a person here who feels oppressed living the life he or she's living So we feel this motivation, we apply ourselves, we focus on this. We see everything in our life in terms of this struggle. You know, if you want to put it in, as it often is in the Buddhist teaching, in sort of militaristic terms, you know, the bad guy, Mara, the bad one. And this is our, you know, we're focused here. And then the last of the four bases of success is investigation. So that's what that, that focus allows for the investigation. This commitment to see what there is to see. And all four of these, you'll see there's joy in all four. You know, there's joy in that initial motivation to step out, to do. There's, there's joy in digging in, applying our will. There's joy in this strength of mind, like this is what it's about. And there's joy in the unpacking of the moment, opening it up. You know, or learning, we could say. Just in the same way that there's deadness in not doing this. You know, one of the reasons we're so um, susceptible to silly things, you know, like buying more and more stuff, because our our lives feel so hollow, because we're not actually having insight or learning. So we want to distract ourselves from that lack of joy. 
so we, you know, we do this, we do that. Doesn't really help too much, but it distracts us to some degree. I've said this often, but I'll just say it again. This phrase that Paul Noor told me, he heard another person say it at some Qigong conference. If we always do what we've always done, we always get what we've always gotten. And this is this is a flavor of dukkha, a subtle flavor of dukkha, is that we're always doing what we've always done, always getting what we've always got. And so effort is really that stepping out. Now, effort without wisdom goes towards restlessness. So part of, you know, as we feel that motivation, as we apply ourselves, as we feel that strength of mind, this is what it's about as we investigate and unpack the moment. If it all feels very personal, if we start emphasizing the story that I'm on this heroic journey and I'm going to get the gold, we can the ego can get involved in the work and then we get greedy or we get fearful. It gets The mind gets agitated. So we want to set this in motion but we need wisdom to inform it and we need the calm of concentration to inform the efforting. So often, I think we, I mentioned the first week, the five faculties are talked about in terms of the peace of concentration modifying the effort. So without the, the stillness and the peace of concentration, efforting tends to take off on its own, gets involved with an ego sense. And, uh, and then it's like I was describing myself, being mad and just liking stamping, stomping around and kind of making lots of noise and just to feel like the self feels like it has some personal power just by pushing things around and doing things and getting awards and having success and things like that. But the more we're developing concentration, the thing that the flavor of concentration is a sense of inner contentment. So that really modifies this neurotic part of efforting that inner contentment because the ego is cooled by that inner contentment. So then that way the effort is really for this deeper or more profound aspiration to be free instead of um, little, I don't know what the right word is, but just the the ego, um, like self-stimulation just how to create passion in the mind or a little explosion of emotion in the mind. Fear, excitement, um, I'm better than, you know. I mean, it's so interesting how deeply that is. Like just that sense of, you know, at the end tonight I'm going to let you know who's been doing the best in the class. (laughs) You know, it's amazing how something like that just... (laughs) There's a lot of energy there. Or, you know, I could say, you know, at the end of the class, on this piece of paper, I have, who's been doing the worst? <laughs> and even if you're sure it's not you, you still want to know. Because like, it's so 
energizing to know that somebody and who it is that's here, you know. It's just interesting how there's a lot of energy there. So that, uh, just like wisdom is said to modify faith, because faith without wisdom can become neurotic, can become part of an ego trip. Efforting without concentration, the contentment of concentration can also just be an ego trip. So there's a little time. Let's just take it to see if people have some comments from your practice you'd like to share with the group or questions. Anything come to mind around effort into mindfulness, which we'll pick up next week? Yeah, Gail. Thanks so much, Gail. <laughs> now, that doesn't have to happen to us because we heard Gail talk about it. <laughs> Other thoughts? Yeah, Barbara.
Yeah, I think actually it's like a whole handful of skillful means, not just one. Having some concentration would bring up a sense of contentment, an inner happiness. So that what that does is it teases out, like, I have to do this work in order to be happy because we're already feeling happy. So then you're going to do that work because it's the right thing to do, but not because you it's going to make you happy because you're already happy. So that teases that out. So that's why that's really important. The other thing is, <clears throat> I mentioned right at the beginning of the talk, um, and I use this a lot like just in terms of the buying the building and renovating the building and just other aspects of my job here at the center. Um, and it's one of the ways to wholesomely reflect on the future. Just the sense that in 10 years, a lot will be done. And just to, to get that sense, like in a sense, the future already exists. You know, 10 years from now already exists and a lot will be done. And somehow, it's hard for me to describe, but somehow it really makes it impersonal. Like nature is going to make this thing happen. So like when we were in the middle of the, the renovation and it, you know, it just seemed to be going on forever, it would occur to me that it, it, it will be done. And just that recognition that it will be done, it just made me realize, oh, you know, there's, you know, there's no way it's not going to be done. Someday it will be done. And just a sense of letting all of the different causes and conditions do what they're doing. Part of it is you know, my own motivation and my own focus and my own efforting. But it doesn't, it didn't have to be uh, like the sense that I was responsible. It really made it like nature was doing this. So putting your project in a very vast, deep scheme of things that has its own intelligence, its own integrity, it's already doing it. You know, we're part of this huge mechanism we call life, whether you want to think about it as human life or, you know, whatever circle, however big you want that circle to be. And that takes some of the individual burden off of the situation when you cast it. So that's bringing wisdom in, you know, bringing that reflection in. It's just getting the mind out of its small box. This is my project. I want to do it right. I should have started this weeks ago. And that it's so it's so co-authored that we won't be able to claim, honestly claim anything. I mean, people may attribute whatever it is to us when it's done, but we'll know that it's so co-authored by so many other forces that it's not really ours anyway. I mean, I feel this about the building. I mean, sometimes when I'm more neurotic, it feels like personal, like I had a lot to do with what went on here. But when I'm, my mind's more balanced, it's like, you know, it's just a mystery that, that this even happened. 
still amazes me. Like I just don't understand. Like this last year, something like two hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars were donated in two thousand eleven, and I just don't understand how that happens. <laughs> it's like doesn't seem like that much money comes in, you know, to make it all happen, but it does, you know, and so. Just to have that sense of awe, like all the work I've done, all the work everybody else has done, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing that people like Scott Jensen happens to be devoted enough and have enough time to do all the stuff he does to make all of the technical stuff at the center happen. You know, it's just, it is amazing. All these different aspects of nature that come and do whatever they're going to do to make things happen here. And this is true in not just you know my life or Common Ground's life, but it's true in everybody's life. And it's not all good stuff either. I mean, there are a lot of other forces that are happening that have their own life that are unstoppable that we wish weren't happening. But in a way, I guess what I'm pointing to is this um, part of effort is submitting to what's going to happen anyway. You know, like understanding, I'm going to do this anyway. Like I, I feel that way around my practice. I'm committed to this practice already. I might as well sit. Or I'm committed to this practice already. I might as well return back to the present moment. You know, it, when we see it in that light, it just doesn't make sense to be avoiding the work we're, do, we're committed to doing. It just makes sense to do the next thing. Because we understand that that's what's set in motion. And we can only play around the edges, like we can avoid it a little bit and it only hurts. Or we can just go with the flow of our life, get on with it, basically. We have to leave it here. We'll have more time for sharing next week in our small groups and I'll try to end sooner so that you have plenty of time in the small groups talking about Anything that's relevant in your practice, of course, but specifically effort and energy, it's such a powerful topic. And I'll just mention, and maybe I did last week, but I can't remember if I did, but one of the powerful things that Joseph Goldstein once said is that uh, he understands his whole, now 40 years of practice or whatever it's been, in terms of the, the development of understanding around right effort. Like he understands the whole path as a path of understanding what is right effort. So I'm, I show that <laughs> understanding, you know. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words, take a breath or two together. making the effort to be real and present and alive with things as they are. And remembering this effort, this wholesome effort to submit, to release into the life that's being lived moment by moment. Thanks everyone for coming tonight.
reminder that Louis Halameo will be giving the monthly guest Dharma talk on Friday night. We are here to awaken. Please join in for that. Gail and Ramesh are doing their mindfulness and physical pain workshop this Saturday. You can join in for that. Gail's doing an intro workshop if you know anybody who's interested in that. Sunday afternoon, 1.30 to 5. Santi Carlos programs are coming up in a few weeks. The second weekend in March. Friday night, the 9th, a talk on patience. Saturday, a talk on emptiness. Sunday afternoon, a talk on the addiction to self. So he's a wonderful teacher. If you're free that weekend, you might want to come to all or some of those programs. Other announcements people have? I forgot that Kim was going to do the Donna talk tonight, but I think because it's four minutes after, do you mind waiting or do you want to do it quick? Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, no, we'll do it next week. We'll do it right after the guided meditation. I thought about doing it then because we always end up I always end up forgetting, and I thought, oh, I'm going to forget. I should write it down. Then I couldn't find my pen. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being flexible, Kim. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.